0: Welcome to Alberta Conservation Association's Harvest Your Own podcast, the resource for everything hunting, navigating through the field, the butcher shop, and the kitchen. Life is all about great food. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fenson, an avid outdoor enthusiast who has worked as a freelance journalist, photographer, and public speaker for over three decades. I have hunted, fished, and foraged all my life and hope to share my passion for the outdoors. Along the way, I want to encourage everyone to harvest wild proteins and enjoy the satisfaction of providing the next meal for your family. Our goal is to educate, entertain, and inspire individuals to get outdoors and create a connection between food, health, and your future meals. Welcome to Harvest Your Own. Today we have an interesting topic. We're going to call it Optics 101, and we're going to look at binoculars and rifle scopes and how they work, what people need. And because our audience is a lot of uh, first-time hunters or people wanting to know more information or gain knowledge on equipment for hunting, yeah, we're going to take it down to a, a basic level where people can make informed decisions to get what they need to advance their hunting in the field. So I'd like to welcome Adam Patterson from the Corth Group. How's Adam today?
2: I'm doing well, Brad. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: My pleasure. Um, you know, the Corth Group... Uh, has loophole for an optic company and has for years. It's a well-known brand made in North America. Uh, give us a little bit of information about your background in optics and and you know what makes you an expert.
2: Well, expert's a little bit of a strong <laughs> word, but uh, I can certainly give you a little bit of of my background, a little bit of Corth Group's background. So, Corth uh, Group was actually founded back in 1977. At that time, we were called Jim Corth Agencies. Um, the current president Terry had worked with his dad Jim. Um, and they initially were reps for, for Loophole back then. And, and in the mid nineties, I think it was around 95, they started distributing Loopold to the Canadian marketplace. Um, and we just continue that on ever since we are the factory reps for Loopold We are the importer distributor and the warranty center. So we, we're fairly fortunate. We have a, a fully functional optics lab here in our facility in Okotoks, Alberta. Uh, we can build scopes from parts. We can fully service, disassemble, reassemble, um, diagnose issues, um, uh, right here in-house, and they we're one of the only optics labs like it in the country. Um, myself, I, I've been working in the firearms industry for uh, a little over 14 years. Um, I've worked retail, I've worked distribution, sales, marketing. I am a factory-trained loophole technician, um, so I have had the opportunity to, uh, to have, you know glean a fairly good understanding of the inner workings of the optics. Um, I'm so excited to talk about um, scopes and, and binos today with you, Brad, and give some people some pointers on what to look for. and how to wade through the uh, the claims that are out there.
1: It's interesting because people look at binoculars and rifle scopes, and often they all look the same. And some of us can distinguish different characteristics or things that make them different that are hard to see with the naked eye or up front. You know, I've been fortunate; I've been through the old production plant, seen all the different processes, how they make things, how they coat them, how they put them together and I've also been to Austria and been through Swarovski's production plant so I know that not all optics are made equal and uh you know the different models there there's different models for a reason so why don't we start with the basic let's just start with uh, the components of a binocular and keep in mind this is for people that want to uh you know get into the hunting industry looking for more information a lot of people that that don't have that basic information
2: for sure so uh, you know the biggest thing with with observation equipment and i 'll group spotting scopes into the conversation a little bit here, uh, you know a lot of people don 't appreciate that we spend more time glassing than we ever do looking through our scope in the field um, and and the binos really are a key point to to buy the best you can afford within reason, of course, but um, you, you know pick the features that you 'd like pick the use case you know if you're hunting in eastern canada typically it's dense bush you're not going to need 15 power binos in most cases so you want to buy something maybe more in an 8 to 10 power um, that's going to be a better fit for those closer shots and 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 really not being able to see distance where you know for those of us in western canada you know flat prairie up in the mountains we've got a lot more wide open land that uh, a higher power bino can be an asset um, but i think with that, and we can get into some of the, the functionality of, of binos in a moment. Um, I think it's important to be realistic that you might need two optics, you know, especially for the Western hunter. Having a good set of, you know, eight to ten power, maybe twelve power binos can be an asset, and then having a spotting scope that's going to help extend your your ability to glass even further. Um, whether you are up in the mountains chasing sheep or, uh, or out in the prairie looking for mule deer or antelope, um, so something that we get asked a lot is how to focus binos most binoculars are built one of two ways typically more price point product has just the center focus wheel and when you're focusing that style of bino essentially you just open the the hinge up to the point that you're getting a nice clear image through both eyes and then turn that wheel to focus in at whatever distance the target happens to be at um, and crisp up the image the other option is is usually found in higher end binoculars where you have that center focus wheel, but then you also have a diopter adjuster on the right eyepiece. And so the way that you want to focus those binos is to actually close your right eye, use the center focus wheel with your looking through the binos with your left eye. Once you have a crisp, clean image on the left, close your left eye, open the right and focus the diopter on the right side. Um, And that's how you would set up that, that type of binocular. And then as you're, ranging at distance you can simply focus with the, the center knob at that point
1: and the, um, the diopter is easy to find it's uh, on the eyepiece it usually has some type of graduation meju- measurement on it uh, so that you can turn it back and forth or even lock it in place uh, keep track of where your eye is in case somebody else grabs your binoculars uses them and refocuses them <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that's always inconvenient because you spend a lot of time refocusing in the field uh, if you're sharing that that style of vinyl
1: and- um, uh, one question on the uh, diopter, when you're uh, focusing it, what range should your object be to get um, the widest variety of focus when you're looking at things from 20 yards to 300 yards?
2: Leupold recommends on your initial sight in, if you want to call it that, of focusing the binos, um, something between 50 and 100 meters would be a reasonable distance to start. Um, and then as you go further out, you can use that center knob to, to focus in on on the object.
1: Very good. You know, people that have trouble focusing their binoculars might want to uh, look at the eyepiece. Like some of them are made to fold down and use glasses and others can uh, be either turned up or popped up uh, to provide, I, I guess it's proper eye relief so you can see the, through them. Is that the proper term?
2: Yeah, it would essentially be the eye relief because as you say, the the Eye cups generally accommodate people that have corrective lenses or if you're wearing shooting glasses um, or, or don't need it, it would be kind of the eye relief set off on the on the bino.
1: Right. So anyone that's got a set of binos and they're having trouble setting them up initially, you know, focus the wheel, set up the diopter, and make sure you look at it with the eye cups turned down if you have glasses or fold it up if you're just going straight eyeball.
2: Exactly. The other thing, too, that, um, that we should keep in mind, whether you're, you're sighting in your binos or a rifle scope, that the eye is a muscle. And if you look through an optic for too long, your eye will try and force itself to see the image clearly. So it can be advantageous to sort of you know look through the binos for a couple seconds, make some adjustments, look away, look back through them again. And, and same when you're sighting in a rifle scope to get that reticle initially uh, focused in, which, which we'll talk about further later. It can be helpful to look for a few seconds and then look away so your eye doesn't complicate the process by trying to focus on a, a blurry object.
1: You know, that's a good point because your eye and your brain do focus that object t- to some degree. So I believe I was told never look through it for more than four seconds as, at a time, put it down, put it back up, make another adjustment, put it down, and uh, that way you'll get the true focus and not what your brain is trying to tell you it can adjust for you. Exactly. <laughs> components of a bino um you know maybe we should start with power first like i think uh people starting out hunting in western canada a seven by 35 an eight by 42 something like that is probably ideal to cover most things from spotting ducks and geese to looking for deer antelope and all the rest of it absolutely you know uh, if you go to a ten power binocular it's more of a specialized thing for for having a closer look or scanning further distances if you were trying to get into sheep hunting or something like that
2: yeah, and I think a lot of it really depends on on what you're doing right if you If you're a dedicated sheep hunter, you might want a twelve or even a fifteen power bino which have become really popular in the last couple of years really large high magnification, amazing binoculars to spend a day glassing with uh, but you know the trade-off to that is is the weight um, so I think so much of what's important to the consumer is, is deciding what do they most commonly need the bino to do and then I think from there you can make a decision if, it, if a, a bino is enough or maybe you need bino and spawning scope um, maybe you need two sets of binos I, I think it really just depends on on what you're doing and, and how you're doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a really good exercise is to go into a sporting goods store and pick up a 7x35 and look at it, look at the details in some signs across the store, and then pick up an 8-power binocular and do the same thing, and then a 10. And one thing you'll notice real quick is that uh, the more magnification you have, the shakier it gets as your arms fatigue and try to hold them up. So uh, it's another important uh, little message when you're buying your first binoculars. More power is not always better. Uh, it can often be difficult when you're standing out in the wind to hold them steady, get a clear image, or even to use them and, and focus them.
2: Absolutely. And In addition to that, if, if you're new to glassing, having too much power is a detriment because you you have a, a much smaller field of view. In a lot of cases, simply because the magnification is increased. Um, so it can be harder to, uh, to track and follow game uh, with high power binos if you're not accustomed to them. One thing I, I would add in on the shakiness because it, it's something that impacts everybody at, at one point or another. Many tripod companies, um, uh, loophole has a few options and then there are quite a few companies out there that build their own proprietary tripods that have uh, mount options where you can actually have your bipod or your tripod hold the bino in place um, and then that can really help uh, reduce arm fatigue and, and neck fatigue when you're in the field for a long time.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that comes back to your question about do you really need two optics? I've I'm one of those people, maybe it's because I'm older, I love to have my binos on my chest in a chest pack and I use them regularly. You know, when I'm Mm -hmm. walking and I see anything that's out of place, I look. I take a few steps, I scan the area with my binos. They're a tool that helps me find game before they see me. Um, The spotting scope, though, is my go-to as a second. So I'll give you an example. You go out moose hunting and, uh, you know, it's been legal light for 15 minutes and you see three moose that are half a mile away. And you can't see if they have antlers. You get out a spotting scope and uh, put it on them and all of a sudden you know if you have something legal that you can go and pursue and try to hunt. So it can save you a lot of time. It can provide a lot of information. Yes, it costs more money, but uh, often the binoculars won't provide that detail at good range where a spotting scope will. But, you know, somebody starting out, they need to to look at a 7x35 or an 8 x forty, eight 8x42, something like that and... And at least get in the absolutely. game. Absolutely, yeah,
2: absolutely. And, and ultimately, you know, if, if you have to save for an extra year to get the next level up of optical quality, it's worth it. You know, we spend so much time glassing that um, low-quality optics generally don't help your hunt. Um, and it, you know, within reason, of course, you know, buying what what's affordable. But uh, the, if you if you can buy the best you can afford, I think you'll have a, a much better experience, regardless of the brand. You know, there's a lot of good product out there. Um, and, and I, I really do think you get what you pay for in a lot of cases for, uh, for optics.
1: Yeah. You make a good point. And you know, uh, the other point is people do like to trade up once they understand optics, know how to use them properly, spend more time in the field. And there's also options to buy used optics. So, uh, there yeah, are absolutely. very high quality optics out there that you can buy that, uh, you know, from any of the stores online, but, uh, there's also some, uh, used products that could, uh, uh help get you in the game is how I'll put it. But, You know, there's lots of information about choosing binos and optics on the Harvest Your Own website, too. So we always send people back to
0: that source of information as well. This podcast is produced for Harvest Your Own, a program dedicated to those who want to reconnect with food and health through their experiences outdoors. HarvestYourOwn.ca is a resource for individuals to learn more about hunting and the outdoors. There's information to get you started and ensure that your compass stays pointed in the right direction to be successful. Where's your next meal coming from?
2: Most manufacturers have customer service departments. If you ever have any technical questions or or need help with the product, many of the big-name optics companies have an entity in Canada, and and those that don't generally if you call their their office, they can help. Uh, The other thing, too, to keep in mind, you make a great point, Brad, with with used optics – most of the big names carry lifetime warranty on their, their binos. Um, so it gives the consumer a little bit more confidence when you are buying used product that if you have an issue or, or problem, uh, that it'll be looked after.
1: <laughs> the one thing that I remember most of touring the Leupold factory is the glass showcase up front of all the optics that have been returned for a lifetime warranty that people have run over and dropped down a mountain and all these other things. It was uh, It's quite a chuckle and informative to actually look at it. <laughs>
2: sure is. And, and you know, the, the few of them, too, where guns have detonated and, and the, the scopes weathered the explosion, it, it, it's pretty neat to see the, <laughs> the unique ways that people find uh, to damage their product.
1: <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, speaking from experience, it can happen uh, without even trying is the best way to put it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, it can. And then it's nice to know that, um, you know, reputable companies are going to stand behind the product and make sure you're looked after.
1: Yeah. Anything else on binos? Is there any specific design or profiles uh, that we that people should look at to get started or to get a better image?
2: I think it. You know, there's a, there's roof and, and Poro style prisms, which is the, the way the internal mechanism operates and then the shape of the, the bino. Um, the Poro are most common. I, I would say whatever size and style best fits your eye, because everybody's face is a little different. Eyes are different distances apart. Um, just finding the the bino that 's going to work best for your needs and for your use um, and, and buy the best that you can um, you know there 's a cliche in the gun business about buy once cry once um, and it, it is absolutely true you know if you buy entry level binos just to get started and you 're going to upgrade at some point later on you 've now bought two pairs and and if you can wait and just buy the premium one time um, and then you won't uh, won 't have to upgrade at some point but.
1: right. And you made another good point about how everyone's face is different. Binos also, also adjust for the width of your eyes.
2: They do. They do. And, and more compact binos have less range of uh, movement. Um, and so really just make sure you find one that's comfortable and actually works for your face and for your eyes and that you're not straining to uh, to look through it. Right.
1: So, uh, again, I'd recommend people get out with some friends, ask them to bring their binos, uh, sit around in the yard in some lawn chairs, do a, a late evening test when the sun starts to set, and see which ones are going to show you the images better. You can set up some pictures in the trees, on the lawn, at different distances, and you'll quickly see that not all binos are made equal.
2: That holds a lot of truth for all optics. Um, <laughs> and you know, the biggest challenge consumers face is typically we we buy at the retail level during daylight hours and usually people are out hunting shopping you know mid to late summer where it's the sun midday is is bright high in the sky and and in most retail establishments now they have fluorescent lighting so you you don't always get a true experience with the optics when you're in the retail stores because typically that type of light is not when we're hunting Um, so it's a challenging thing for a lot of consumers to actually get a real feel for how the optics are going to work in low light Um, to make a great point Brad if you can get it with people you know whether it's at your gun club or your your hunting group try and get a chance to look through as many different optics as you can because it, it really does make a big difference between manufacturers and then within the, the model hierarchy of those manufacturers. Um, there's some really great product out there and, and then some not as great product out there.
1: Yes. And seeing is believing. So if you can do that exercise and get a bunch of friends to bring different types of and different models and different uh, brand names of optics over, you're quickly going to see what you like. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. I'll bridge the conversation here by talking about what makes uh, optics different and quality. Um, you know, glass and coatings are the big ones uh, to me. It, I don't know if I am overlooking something, but the glass and the coatings uh, are what really make the optics special.
2: Well, and that is really what makes the optic. Um, you know, there's other internal components, obviously, that make it function. Um, glare management's another aspect of uh, internal uh, light management from the, the optic. But really, the the coatings are are the key to... The experience for the user. Um, so glass is, is supplied by numerous companies around the world. There's lots of belief online that one is superior to the other. Typically, the, the glass quality that's used in and firearms optics, whether it's rifle scopes or binos, are choice cuts of glass. Uh, but ultimately, what really separates one company from another and, and one product line from another is the lens coatings that are used on the on the glass. So lens coatings typically give you scratch resistance, but more importantly, they help manage light and clarity of the image. So the lens coatings, and it gets really complicated and there's lots of science that goes into it, but typically the lens coatings are utilized to sort of highlight one part of the color spectrum. So Leupold focuses their lens coatings on the the blue and green low light scenario, there are some companies that actually optimize their lens coatings in the red-orange spectrum, which is brighter light um, and which will make those scopes look clearer and cleaner inside of a box store, uh, but it will actually give you less optical performance in low light because the, the coatings have been optimized for bright light settings. Um, now a, a bright lens coating would be advantageous on a competition scope where you're only ever shooting during the day. Um, but most of us if you're if you're planning to use that uh, that scope in the field for hunting you want that more green blue hue spectrum on the, the lens coatings so that you have more optical clarity and, and light transmission in uh, low light.
1: yeah that's where optics really shine is uh, when the sun starts to set or before it rises uh, being able to see things in distinguished detail is very important
2: well and especially as you said earlier Brad with with being able to count points um, you know here in Alberta we're limited to, um, antlerless is anything less than a four inch antler and the mule deer that we have here have these big satellite ears. And and it's really easy for the, the, uh, the spike to be hidden by the ear. Um, and so having that, that optical clarity and low light can really make the difference between, you know, possibly a, a not legal animal, right? If if you're not paying
1: attention. Absolutely. What does fully multi-coded optics mean? Like there's so many different coatings. What what's the jargon and what should people be looking for?
2: Well, it, it, uh, there is an aspect of, of marketing that goes into it. And it, it's the terminology that they've used for their, their lens coatings. And so loophole uses something called index lens matching. So if you looked at the vx 5 that scope has roughly 12 lenses in it, depending on the magnification range. So each lens is fully coated with their lens coating and so the multi-coat is more than one coat and it is fully coated all the way around the edges. Uh, The higher end scopes from Leupold have blackened lens edges because it helps with with, with the glare management Um, but it is that the entire piece of glass has been coated and all pieces of glass have been coated with that, that lens coating.
1: Right so it's important to have proper coatings and this is just a message from me to our listeners is when you're in the field and your binoculars and your rifle scope get dusty or you've got a little bit of rain that catches a lens, don't pull out your shirt tail and wipe it off.
2: <laughs> Thank you for that. We, we see that a lot here <laughs> uh, with uh, scratched glass because people are using their coat sleeve or, or shirt tail. Or uh, there are lens pens or lens wipes that are hugely helpful to have on you in, in your pack or in your chest rig when you're hunting.
1: Yeah, I always keep one. Uh, they have the, the little cloths that tuck up into a neoprene case and I clip one onto my bino case and you have it in the field to clean your binos or your rifle scope. and, you know, never do something that could scratch the coatings. That's a very expensive piece of the optic and it's what you're going to pay the money for. So guard it carefully.
2: Yeah, and it, it generally you won't scratch it one time, but uh, you, you certainly can. But a, a repeated use of your, your sleeve is, is what causes the most damage to, um, to all optics for sure. Right.
1: So we've covered binos pretty well, and I, I did want to use the lens coatings uh, as a bridge into rifle scopes because all optics are, are coated so that you can get the light transmission and clarity and all the rest of it. Uh, let's move into rifle scopes. Um, how do you choose a sure. rifle scope?
2: Well, there sure are a lot of options on the market these days. Um, I, I would say the same as the Bino. I, I think you need to determine what you're going to be doing with the scope. You know, if, if you're a long range shooter, you, you may want a higher magnification optic. If you're hunting in dense bush in eastern Canada, you might want to go with a red dot. There's so many options. And I think a lot of people get hung up on more magnification than they might need. And by far too large of an adjust, of a, um, objective lens. Uh, we can get into exit pupil at some point, if you'd like to talk about it, Brad. Um, but we see a lot of people that, that aren't buying the optimal optic for what they're doing. Um, and if, you, if you're if you dual use, if you're going to shoot matches and hunt with something, uh, which I do, I, I use one rifle for both. Um, and I've got a, a Mark 5 three point six eighteen, which is a light enough optic and a low enough powered optic that I can use it. To, to chase mealy's in eastern Alberta, um, but it also works well, you know, shoot a PRS match. Um, so I think it's really just determining what you need, where you're hunting, how you're hunting, and then what features fit into your budget.
1: Yeah, budget's always important, but again, you get what you pay for. And let's let's pick a scope for somebody that's never hunted before. They've gone through their hunter ed, they've got their pal, they've spent some time at the range, and they're going out. They have some some doe tags, and they're hoping to fill some doe tags. Um, what's a great scope that they could purchase to put on a, a firearm and be content with it probably for the rest of their life?
2: Well, I can speak fairly well to the, the loophole product offering and, and everything set up within their product hierarchy as a, a good, better, and best. Yeah. So, the good and, and what a hunter starting out or even a seasoned hunter, the VX Freedom line, you know, either in a two to seven, three to nine, or four to 12, depending on, on where and how you're hunting, is really everything you'll ever need in a hunting scope. They have cap turrets. CDS, uh, Leupold's custom dial system is is available on the, the Freedom Line. Uh, they're made in the US. Uh, Lifetime warranty. We have the repair center here in Okotoks. The Freedom Line really is all you would ever need on a, on a hunting scope.
1: Yes, and I, I think that's important. Uh, you know, bigger is not always better. People see those huge objective lenses and think it's going to help magnify, but the more you magnify, the harder it is to hold the rifle still, stay on target, and all the rest of it. So finding that happy medium is, is often the most important part of picking an optic for your firearm to be successful. Um, I think it is important to talk about uh, exit pupil. I had you know a conversation with Terry Korth years ago where he explained that to me, and I've written it many times because I think it's great information to know and understand and always keep in the back of your mind when you're looking to buy a new optic.
2: Absolutely. So the exit pupil is the measurement of light that actually passes through the scope to your eye. So it, it's calculated by dividing the objective lens diameter by the magnification that you're, you're at. Um, so for example, a four and a half to 14, at four and a half power with a 40 mil objective, your exit pupil is 8.8 millimeters. Whereas at 14 power with a 40 mil objective, you're at 2.86 millimeters. And so the human eye, the pupil dilation range depends on your age and and the condition of your eyes. But generally, low light conditions, your pupil will dilate four to five millimeters. So if your pupil is, is four to five millimeters in diameter, it can only actually realize the same measurement in exit pupil light. So if your pupil is at five millimeters and you have eight millimeters of light coming through, it, it isn't brighter light or better light. It's just a bigger diameter of light. And so you have unused capacity in that exit pupil because your eye can only use five of those eight millimeters. So when you'll see folks that buy, you know, say a three to nine by 50 or even a four and a half to 14 by 50 because they want a larger objective lens which does allow more light to come through the scope but in some cases it's unusable light and in that situation you you now have a heavier optic that's larger that costs more and that's going to need higher mounts to mount it and now you might have the the negative uh, side effect of uh, poor cheek weld um, when you're trying to get behind those high rings or or extra high rings Um, so the exit pupil measurement is is key to the usability of the optic, but again, I think you want to pick something that's going to be most relevant to what you're doing with the scope.
1: Absolutely, and it also makes a difference in terms of uh, keeping the scope entirely clear, looking through it, and finding your target.
2: Absolutely, you know, and, and the higher magnification, the smaller the field of view, the easier it can be in a you know, high adrenaline situation to, to lose the animal in the optic when you're cranked up on magnification
1: and I think that's really a really important message for a first-time hunter or somebody that's starting out is uh, lower magnification is going to allow you to to see clearly to the edges of the scope when you look through it but it's also going to help you find your target or your animal and stay with it
2: yeah and it aids in situational awareness too because you can see more of where your target is and and beyond your target and and, you know, if you're too zoomed in, you might not see another animal step out or, or hiker. Or you, you never know. We're out there with other people in the woods. Um, having a little bit more visual awareness of what's going on is, is certainly a benefit.
0: This podcast was made possible by Alberta Conservation Association and the Harvest Your Own Community. If you're interested in harvesting your own food, there's a comprehensive collection of information to gain insight and knowledge, head to the field, harvest your own protein, prepare it, and taste the results. HarvestYourOwn.ca is a library of information from getting started and geared up, to processing, butchering, and cooking wild game to make the connection between health and food.
1: Uh, Let's go into uh... Tube diameter. What's the difference between a one-inch tube and a thirty mil? Other than one's metric and one's not, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and the sarcastic answer if one's bigger, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the evolution of of optics over the last number of years. You know, early on, way back in the day, the scopes were three-quarter inch diameter, and then the industry sort of settled on one inch, uh, a thirty mil, and now even thirty-four, thirty-five. Uh, with Leopold I believe Swarovski has a 36mm scope out now. A larger diameter tube does nothing for light transmission or light management. The only benefits or reason to go to a larger tube are to make accommodation for more adjustment range. So a larger tube gives you more left, right, up, down adjustment range in the scope. It, there's more accommodation, physical space for illumination. Uh, With Leupold, there's a circuit board, there's fiber optic cables that that are attached to the reticle. Um, You need space for those electronic items. And then the third is um, your side focus or your parallax adjustment. You need a 30 mil tube to make space for that mechanism inside the optic. And then aesthetically, larger tubes, depending on the configuration of the scope, can look more pleasing on the gun. Um, But the bigger they are, the more they weigh. And so for the, the hardcore mountain hunter, you know, a one inch tube is a, a benefit because it's a lot lighter. Typically the scopes have less features built in because there isn't space for side focus and illumination. So you get a more streamlined, lightweight scope with a one inch option. Um, and then you get all the, the features and, and upgrade options on the, the larger scopes.
1: That's a pretty good rundown. And I, you know, again, people starting out, first timers, people looking for something functional to put some deer or a moose or something in the freezer um, the one-inch tubes are going to be more economical. Uh, unless you get into long-range shooting and other things, the 30-mil tube really isn't required. It's more of a, I think people advance to that, wanting to to try more with their firearms and do more with their firearms uh, when they go into that range of optic.
2: Well, yeah, as, as their hunting interests or shooting interests expand, typically, you know, more equipment's acquired and, and then uh, you're right, the people explore new options, and then you need different product. Um, you know, if you're going to start shooting F-Class, you need a, a, at least a 30-mil tube to have enough adjustment range and, and have the, the side focus for your parallax adjustment.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I really like the discussion around side focus or parallax because some people buy a scope that has a parallax adjustment, but they never use it, or they don't use it properly. And if you don't adjust your parallax for something that's longer range, you're not on target.
2: No, and and the amount that you're off target is going to vary greatly on on how far you're shooting and and what you're shooting at. Um, So a little bit about parallax, and it's a bunch easier to explain with visuals, but just to give it a very simple explanation. Um, So parallax takes place when the target image is not focused on the same plane as the reticle in the scope. Um, So optics are a lot like eyeglasses where they follow a prescription. And focus is given any distance, you know, whether it's far sighted or nearsighted. Um, so to balance it out, and I, I'll get into some of the why it works. Leupold sets their parallax on their hunting scopes at 150 yards, um, and so that's that's beneficial because most people are shooting inside of three to 400, I think, as an average across the country is a, kind of a maximum distance they would be shooting. So 150 yards gives you parallax free shooting, which is going to be close enough to work. So when you're in parallax the reticle is is in the same focal plane as the target. So if if you move your head or your eye behind the scope, the reticle is going to stay on the same point of aim, and your point of impact is going to be where you're aiming. When you're out of parallax, any movement from you behind the, the scope is going to have the same amount of movement on the target. Now that might only be half an inch, it might be four inches, which depending on how far you're shooting, it may or may not have an impact on where the bullet impacts the animal. Um, So if you have side focus, you know how to use it, it can be beneficial, but in a lot of hunting scenarios, when you're inside of 400 yards, it it typically isn't needed for most hunters, Um, that your, your parallax error it shouldn't be enough that it would significantly throw off where your bullet lands. Um, but i said it, it, it's always beneficial to get out and shoot at the distance you plan on hunting just to ensure that the equipment works the way you need it to.
1: Absolutely. And I know it is very hard to visualize, but people can go online and look up uh, a YouTube video on parallax adjustment yeah. and why it's required and you'll understand it better. And the reason I bring it up is some people are listening to this saying, man, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So buy a scope without parallax adjustment. And that's the easiest way to get around it if you don't want something else to deal with in the field.
2: Absolutely. And it, it is, um, you know, added bulk and added weight for people that that maybe not, you know, don't have a need to utilize it. Um, it, it does add extra cost to buying the optic. And if it isn't a feature you need, then,
1: then it isn't worth buying. Right. And I've had some buddies too that buy nice scopes with parallax adjustment, but they don't know how to use it, so they know, line up at an elk at longer range, they don't readjust their parallax and they miss and they don't understand why. So yeah. understanding parallax is critical if you're gonna have it in your optic.
2: Um, well I think if I can just add one more one more point to that, Brad. Yeah. Um if you're shooting at proper extended range, I know there are some folks that they're taking moose and elk in, in the mountains at, you know, six, seven, maybe eight hundred yards and, and these are experienced shooters, um make sure you're buying the right equipment for that task. Right and then practicing. You know, it, it's, we're at a time in history where the, the firearms and the optics and the ammo are the best they've ever been. And it's extending the range and, and opening up more long range hunting opportunities for the people that want to put the time in. Um, and I, I think you just need to make sure you buy the right equipment for the job, um, depending on what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. And I've always recommended to people, you only ever shoot at an animal as far as you've shot at a target. So if you go deer hunting yep. and you've only ever shot at a hundred yards, that's your range for, for hunting deer. If you want to yep. shoot at something that's 200, 250, 300 yards, you need to practice that to see what your bullet's doing, if you can hold the gun steady, and if it's a fair and ethical shot to take. So it'll it'll quickly teach you what your abilities are or where you need to practice to sharpen your game to, to lengthen the range of your, your hunting abilities.
2: Absolutely, and and sometimes hard life experiences teach that lesson for you. When, when you chase an injured animal for a few hours, <laughs> it, it, uh, it can change things for you for sure.
1: Yeah. You know, we started off talking about focusing a bino. I think we're going to end off by how do you focus a rifle school? People spend all this money, uh, pull it out of the box, put it on their rifle and some of them never focus the reticle.
2: Yeah. And, and again, it's a, it's an, it's such a key part of the whole process. Um, we recommend actually focusing the reticle before you even mount the, the optic on the gun. Um, you want a clear, clear wall, clear sky, something that, that you can look at that you're not actually focusing on a target. You're, you're, all you're doing with the focus of the reticle is focusing the reticle. So most rifle scopes have an adjustable ocular lens, whether it's the entire housing or if it's, it's just the diopter adjustment. Uh, it depends on the, on, the, on the model of the scope really. Um, what you want to do is, is bring the scope up, look through it for a second or two, and then take it away from your eye. And all you're looking to do is see if that reticle is crisp and clean. Doesn't matter about anything else, but you're just setting the diopter to get that reticle focused. Um, And once you've done that, it can take a few tries. Um, Typically, the more prescription you have in your eye, the the further back you're going to need that lens to be twisted out. Um, Most loophole optics run a plus two to minus two diopter setting range. Um, So it does accommodate most prescriptions out there for folks. but once you get it set, you shouldn't need to change the diopter setting again, um, unless you're sharing the scope with, with another shooter. Um, and then focusing the, the target, if you have a side focus knob or an adjustable objective and you're shooting it at distance, um, or if you're shooting air gun rifles at a you know, three position match where you might need to focus down to 10 meters, um, you're going to use your parallax adjustment to focus the image of the target once you've set the focus
1: on your reticle. Right. So important lesson is to focus that reticle. You want it clear and crisp against any target when you are trying to harvest an animal. And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, not shooting at an actual paper target or focusing. I still prefer a crisp blue sky with no clouds where when you lift it, you can clearly see if that reticle is fuzzy, hazy. And as you make those adjustments, you'll see it come in really nice and sharp. And you can actually go a little beyond till it fuzzes again, and you come back into the center, and you know that you got it perfect. Like when you see it, seeing is believing. And when you focus that reticle, it's like, oh, wow, that made a huge difference.
2: Yeah. And, and the, the sky really is the best way to do it. And, and that's why I recommend doing this before you mount the scope to the rifle so your neighbors aren't uh, concerned with you pointing at the sky in your backyard. Right. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, the, the sky is really the, the best way to do it.
1: Uh, Any other advice for purchasing, maintaining, uh, or using optics?
2: Well, I think it's hugely important to do your research. Um, And if you have an opportunity to get out and and actually look through some optics, not during a bright, sunny day, midday, or under fluorescent lighting, it's hugely helpful. And something to keep in mind, there's no governance in the optics world to hold manufacturers to account for their claims um so there are some realities and some physics to how optics function um, and it's called the optical triangle where you, on the three sides you have magnification eye relief and field of view and all three have to work in harmony so if any one of the three sides of the triangle are changed it has a Corresponding effect on on what's actually available to be used in the optics. So, as an example, if you increase magnification, your field of view and eye relief will decrease. Um, So, I I think it's really important to try and wade through some of the claims that are out there. Um, You know, you hear a lot of times 99% light transmission, and that just physically is not possible. When you have multiple pieces of glass, the light cannot maintain that much percentage to pass through all of them. Um, So, I, I just think it's really key to to experience the optics yourself and ideally not in inside of a, a fluorescently lit room, um, just to get a bit better feel on how they're going to function in the field when you're using them, uh, you know, in a hunting scenario.
1: Absolutely. And again, if you've got some friends that uh, have binoculars, rifle scopes, uh, just being able to look through them, hold them, see how steady you can, uh, hold it, how easy they are to adjust. It's going to teach you some things, uh, that are going to help you in the field that, uh, I'll call it uh, in-hands or on-hands experience, is huge. And, you know, we all have people that will share their information and their their outdoor toys with us so that we can get a first-hand look at them and make some really informed decisions about what we not only need but what we like and what's functionable. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's so key, and everybody's eye is different. And a scope that works really well for me might not work as well for Brad and, and vice versa. So it's so important to experience these things before you commit to them. Absolutely.
1: Adam, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge, experience and information of products today. Uh, I think it uh, is important information. And I know that people that are starting out are confused. They're hit with so, many mar- so much marketing that it's, it's really difficult to make an informed decision. So knowing the basics will allow people to go out and actually find what they need uh, in a functional way to be successful.
2: Well, 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 thank you so much for having me on again, Brad. We we like talking product around here and, and also want to thank you for all the work you've been doing to grow awareness for the sport. You know, it, it's so important that we keep passing down the the traditions of our, our pastime. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of heritage and, and legacy within families out there and, And you're doing a lot of great things to uh, bring more people into it. So that's hugely appreciated from, from us in the industry.
1: Well, thank you. It's kind of a passion. I love seeing more people getting out there and taking new people out every day. So on behalf of Harvest Your Own, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We hope to inspire people to reconnect with nature and appreciate where your food comes from by harvesting your own. For more information on getting started or to learn specifics about the field to fork experience, visit harvestyourown.ca and follow on Facebook and Instagram. Check back often for new material, recipes, and videos that are posted regularly. Please subscribe to Harvest Your Own podcast and take the time to rate and review the show to help us build a dedicated core of passionate hunters as our regular audience. Until next time, embrace the outdoors and all it has to offer.